A while back, I read an article by a Christian missionary that really caught my attention. Um, He was writing about his family's transition back to the United States after having been in Africa as missionaries for almost 20 years. And he spent some time describing um, what their life was like in Africa, and the truth of the matter is, they didn't have a lot. They lived in a single family home, a single level with three bedrooms, and then they would fight over the one bathroom. (laughs) They had a car to get around with, but it was really old, and it was always a a guess or a wonder, a question, whether it was going to start in the morning. In their closets, they had just enough clothes so that they didn't have to do laundry more than once a week. They didn't go on exotic vacations, and uh, they didn't have a cabin near the lake to go to. They didn't have much, he wrote, but they didn't need much, and they were happy. And in fact, their life looked very similar to the lives of the other families and the other people who lived in that area of Africa. In fact, he wrote, we probably had a little bit more than most. Then they moved back to the United States, and they uh, settled in a nice suburb. And as he wrote about what they now have, he said, our house, three times at least as big as the house we had in Africa. Instead of having one car that works sometimes, we have two cars that work all the time. Our closet, so much clothes that it would last us well over a month or two before we'd get to wear everything. They still don't have a cabin by the lake, but they do go on vacations every now or then. And then he wrote this, that 10 years later after or so after reading this article, I still think about, still rolls around in my mind and my heart. He wrote, we now have more of just about everything you can think of. But here's what we have less of, happiness and contentment. And he goes on to explain that they have more than they used to, way more. But they live in an area where everyone around them has more than they do, has bigger and better. And so it's fueled a discontentment in them, a disappointment in them that they never experienced in Africa. Man. As I read that 10 plus years ago, like my heart could just so relate to what he was describing, living where he was living. And there's something that, that I learned, something that sort of, I don't know, kind of, a magnifying glass on my heart. I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. But before I do, I want to, especially for those of you who are maybe joining us for the first time this week, kind of tell you where we've been in this series. It's a series that we're calling New, and we're recognizing that we're at the beginning of a new year. And for many of us, we're looking for this new year for there to be new in us and around us. And so often, as we've heard, people tend to focus on the exterior and the external things when it comes to a new life. 
But in this series, what we're remembering, first of all, is that God, through Jesus, has given us something new. He's given us a new heart. And yet, at times, there are certain emotions, certain unhealthy emotions that can still rattle around in us and in our hearts and in our minds that make us feel at times discontented or strip away our peace and our joy. And what we're saying is that maybe the most important thing you could do this year at the beginning of a year is not worrying about the external, but what does new look like inside in our hearts? And so this week, we are going to shine a spotlight on a feeling or an emotion that many of us have felt, dare I say, all of us have felt in one way or another, especially in the United States. It's, it's envy. It's this comparison of what I have and what I do and where I live and what I drive compared to what everyone else around me does. And envy can take us down some very ugly, mental, and emotional sorts of trails. And I want to think back to that article. Here's here's what struck me about the article, because he laid it out so well. This was the same family. It's not like they came from different backgrounds. It's the same exact family, just in two different locations. The biggest thing that changed around them was their environment. And as I looked at my own life, I thought this. It doesn't make sense that his family would have more stuff, but feel less content, feel less grateful. But that's the nature of envy. Or to put it this way, our first fill-in for today, envy leads you to find contentment not in what you have, but in what you have in comparison. In comparison to the people around you. And just as long as I have bigger and better and fuller and taller and quicker and newer, and just as long as I am successful -er -er -er, then the people around me or the people at work or the people on social media, well, then, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be content. Then I'll be grateful, or to put it this way, as long as you have er, more, better, bigger, you will feel happy and content. I think that if we take a moment to consider that article I read and to think about it as I've tried to lay it out, I think all of us would recognize it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And yet it's something that almost every single one of us struggle with, some of us in bigger ways than others. And I just want you to know that, that envy, well, I'm going to say it this way, envy is ugly. Here's a couple reasons why. The first is that when you struggle with envy, it can be hard to be happy. It's, it's hard to be happy because the only way that you're happy is if you have bigger and better, or at least if you don't, that tends to dampen the happiness and the contentment. 
It's also hard to be a good friend when you struggle with envy. And I'm going to probably poke around a little bit on some things deep in your heart because they were deep in my heart. And you're going to be like, how did he know that? And I'm telling you up front because I struggle with this too. Have, has it ever happened where someone's been um, on a vacation or got a new something and you might like it on social media, but you're not liking it in here? <laughs> that it actually gives you a little bit of, you know, angst around that? And it's not so much you don't like that person, but it's really hard to be happy for that person. You know what that is? It's this ugly thing called envy. Or maybe even a little deeper when it comes to the ugliness of envy. And, and maybe this isn't for all of you. And, but has it ever happened where there's, there's someone that you've kind of been internally competing with? And it seems like everything always goes right for them. And then something, not big, but something little doesn't go quite right for them. Like maybe they just didn't get the perfect job or they had rain on their vacation. They went again. And there's something in you that's like actually a little bit happy about that. And you would never say it because you know it's wrong. And yet, that's envy. The ugliness of envy is something again, in big ways or in little ways that all of us struggle with. And it's just good to call it out that it is ugly and we don't want it in our lives and in our hearts, do we? We'd rather not have those thoughts or feelings. Here's what Solomon said about envy, just very succinctly. He said in Proverbs 14, envy rots the bone, bones. It, it doesn't take us anywhere good. And over time, Envy, if it's not addressed, it can cause people to be bitter and ungrateful and disappointed. So, here's the question. <laughs> what, do, what do we do? Maybe we can just, you know, turn our brains off so that we don't have any thoughts at all. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Here's what I want you to know, because I don't want anyone to be sort of disappointed when they leave today. I am not promising that after you leave today that you won't struggle with envy anymore. It's going to be something we need to continue to monitor in our hearts and in our lives. But I think what we can do today is we can learn better how to address it so even though it still might poke around the edges of our heart's envy, it doesn't have to control us. That when we feel this angst come up, this inability to be happy for someone or this inability for us to be happy with our lives, <clears throat> that we take a moment to realign what we're feeling with the truth of this message and the truth of God's word. We can't eliminate it altogether, this side of heaven. But envy does not need to control us. 
So we're going to turn to start is a section of scripture written by that same Solomon that wrote that Proverbs passage. For those of you who don't know a lot about Solomon, he lived about 3,000 years ago. Um, He was one of the kings of Israel. He also happened to be one of the wisest men who ever lived. And the letter or the book that he wrote called Ecclesiastes is absolutely one of my favorites in scripture because it just does such a good job of of shining a, a light on how, I guess, meaningless this earthly life is compared to what God has given us and does for us for eternity. And as he writes, this guy who had everything this world could offer, he didn't just have er, he had est, right? He was the best. He was the richest. He was the wisest. Um, as an old man, he looks back on his life, and Ecclesiastes is filled with a, a bunch of amazing wisdom. I encourage you to read the whole thing. Today, we're just going to look at a few verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, here's what Solomon writes. He writes, And as an old man, I saw that all toil and all achievement, it springs from one person's envy of another. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that so often when people work hard or strive to succeed, that it's rooted so many times in wanting to get ahead of the person next to you to get ahead of the person that you're working with, to get ahead of the person in your neighborhood, that there's this envy that motivates us. And and maybe Solomon is using a little bit of hyperbole here because I don't know that all toil and all achievement, but if you take time to think about it, if you take time to consider what are your motives for wanting bigger, What are your motives for not being content with the car that you drive? How much of it, if we just take time to think about it, is rooted in what other people have around us and feeling discontented because we want that or we wish we had that? And then Solomon says this. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Have any of you ever tried to chase the wind? If you have, I hope there's video of it, because probably some laughs there. You can't chase the wind. You can't catch the wind. That's Solomon's point. If we live our lives trying to find contentment, trying to find value in comparison to other people, it is, well, It's a goal with no finish line. We're never going to reach what we're looking for. It's meaningless. It's a a chasing after the wind. And here's one of the reasons why. Our second fill-in. There will always be someone with more er than you. Now, does that mean we're not supposed to strive? For those of us who maybe have in us this this desire to achieve, does that mean we're just supposed to suppress that and just kind of sit around and fold our hands for the rest of our lives? Listen to what Solomon says. 
Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. It's like Solomon's writing and thinking as he writes, I'm Solomon. I have been able to grow this amazing treasury here in Israel. I was the one who uh, God appointed to help build and lead the building of his temple. No, we aren't supposed to just sit around and fold our hands and be lazy in our lives. God wants us to use the time that we've been given. He wants us to, to work hard and to achieve. So... What's the difference? Where do we need to tweak things? This next verse is one that, um, well, it's a verse, if you struggle with envy, to write down, to turn to often, to use it to align your heart just like I was able to do this week as I studied through it. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 6. Solomon writes, better one handful of things with tranquility than two handfuls of stuff with toil and the chasing after the wind. What he's saying is it is better to have less and yet with that less have tranquility. What's tranquility? It's peace. It's contentment. It's coming home at night to your house that's not perfect and saying, it's okay. I'm okay with what I have. I'm okay with what I've been given. I'm okay with who I am and where I get to rest my head tonight. that having a closet filled with clothes just enough for the week and yet to be at peace is better than having closets filled with clothes that last well over a month and yet filled with envy. Number three, kind of summarize that verse. See, less is actually more when it includes tranquility. Having less is actually better. It's more when tranquility is attached to it. So then here's the question. How do we find that tranquility? Because I'm thinking that most of you who are listening in the room or online, you would, you would agree with Solomon That in fact, as you have in maybe some years of your life tried to find happy, try to find content by getting more, that you too have found it not to work, that it's a chasing after the wind. But how do I find that tranquility? Well, a couple practical things to start. First of all, it's true that awareness tends to drive envy. And just very practically speaking, I think one thing that is important for us to find that tranquility is to become less aware. And I'm not sure what that means for you, because for some of you, it means to stop going to Home Depot so much. 
But for others of you, it means maybe stop being on Facebook or Instagram so much. It's thinking through, when does this, this envy, this inability to be content, when does that pop up in my heart and in my mind the most? And when you feel it and when you, when you see it to consider, okay, what am I doing? Where am I at? What am I looking at? And then consider, how do, how do I stay away from that more? Maybe it means some relationships need to change a little bit. I, I don't know what it means for you. But one thing that's very practical, if awareness drives envy, is to, in your own way, become less aware. The other thing very practically would be this. Uh, count your blessings, not your neighbor's blessings. Behind this is something we talk a lot about here at North Cross, because God talks about it a lot. It's gratitude and how spending time each day to be thankful for what you do have rather than just asking God for what you don't have, how gratitude can be this amazingly powerful thing that God does and God can use to grow our contentment. Those are some practical things. But as we close today, what I want to focus on is this big thing. You see, here, here's the reality. We're all looking somewhere to determine how we're doing. If you're a runner, it's, it's the clock you're looking at. If you're a coach, it's the standings. If it's a student, it's your report card. We're all looking somewhere to determine how we're doing. I guess I want to ask you, where are you looking? Because if you're not intentional with where you look to determine what you're doing, well then, you're probably going to be using things that are going to grow your discontentment and your envy. I want to turn to some words that Paul wrote about all of us, about humanity. I want to share with you this amazing gift that really goes a long way in determining your value. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Some familiar verses. Paul writes, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under the law. Do you know who those under the law are? <clears throat> That's all of us. We all, as God's children, were born with, well, the need to please him, with the, the call, well, to actually be perfect. And when we look at our lives, we recognize, when we look at the law, we recognize that we're not and I think all of us, whether we recognize it or not, there's this void that we feel knowing that we aren't the people God wants us to be. We're not the people that even we want ourselves to be. And I think sometimes that's actually what drives a lot of this envy of trying to fill that void of imperfection with stuff. Not for all of us, but for many of us it does. 
And so that was what our relationship with God was at one time. It was a broken relationship, but it says that through Jesus, God redeemed us. Jesus came to earth. He gave up his life. He lived not at all about himself, but all about you. And on the cross, he bought you back. He bought, he purchased through the forgiveness that he won, a relationship with God again. You can't fill the void with the things of this world to get that relationship back with God, but he filled it with his death and with his resurrection. He redeemed us. And so then, look at this amazing gift. Your identity changes. It says that we might receive adoption to sonship. I I was thinking about the blessing of adoption. And there's some people in our church that have been recipients of adoption. I think the one maybe uh, that we all know of through the movies is uh, that little redhead girl, Annie, right? And if you know that movie as all the girls are in the orphanage, you know, the hard knock life, right? They're all just longing to find their value in someone who would love them and to take care of them. They don't feel worthwhile or valued at all when, when, when a child doesn't have a parent who loves them. Man, that's a hard thing to get around. And then she's adopted, right? And everything changes. You were adopted. At one time, it was the hard knock life. But God, through Jesus, adopted you and made you his child. And everything has changed. Your identity has changed. Number four, at the root of tranquility is knowing that you're a child of God and knowing that you have a heavenly father whose opinion matters the most and who calls you his child, and that means that he's going to take care of you. I don't know how you view you, but God views you as his child. I don't know how you view you, but God views you as someone he loved so much that he sent Jesus. I don't know how you view you, but God loves you so much he wants to spend eternity with you. And so these verses end this way. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Um, When these words were being put into the Greek, that word Abba, there was no Greek synonym for it because it's, it's more than just father. And so they left the Aramaic word, which means, well, in English, daddy or dada, abba. It's the word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane as he spoke to his heavenly father. And what Paul is, is writing is that through our adoption, God has become our dada, <laughs> our abba. And you are his son's and 
his daughters. So where are you going to find your value? In the never-ending pursuit of better than the person next to us? Where are you going to find your value? It's not how you compare. It's what God has declared. And when you feel that little bit of envy rise up in you where it's hard to be happy for your life or it's hard to be happy for other people, you call that out. You call that out, that envy out, and you realign your heart with God's truth. Because you see, one handful with tranquility is way better than two handfuls and chasing after the wind. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you have given us so much, and yet we have to confess that oftentimes um, it's not thankfulness that rattles around in our heart, but it's discontentment, oftentimes fueled by envy. Lord, we confess our envy today, and we know that through your Son, it has been forgiven. Lord, we pray that with knowledge or maybe a recounting of who we are or how you view us and that being your child is all that we need, we we pray that we might be able to loosen the grip of envy on our hearts and on our lives. And to that end, Lord, be with us. We pray all this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.